Hi, I'm Alejo Stark. And I'm May Maria. On today's Making Contact... This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using GTL. God decided that they weren't going to go into their housing units, leaving from breakfast, leaving from the child hall that morning. They decided that they were going to stand out and protest. Protest the food, protest health service, protest the ventilation, protest the living conditions overall. And so as these few guys stood outside, walking in circles, protesting, chanting, you know, equal work, equal pay, chanting. And they were also calling for other guys inside the housing units to come out and stand with them in solidarity. And it worked. On September 9, 2016, prisoners across the U.S. went on strike. In Michigan, at the Lower Security Kinross Prison, workers assigned to kitchen duties refused to report to their shifts. Hundreds gathered to protest in the prison yard. The strike spread like a prairie fire. Nationally, 24,000 prisoners participated, making it the largest prisoner labor strike in U.S. history. Today, we hear from the people whose lives were changed by this historic event both inside and outside prison walls. September 9 is the anniversary of the Attica prison uprising in New York. In 1971, prisoners across the country were organizing to end the unlivable conditions inside prisons. That August, prison guards gunned down George Jackson, an intellectual and member of the Black Panther Party. News of his murder spread across the world. A few weeks later, when prison guards at Attica beat up two of the prisoners there, it sparked a full-blown rebellion. We are men! We are not beasts and we do not intend to be driven or beaten as such. The entire prison populace has set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of the prisoners here and throughout the United States. What has happened here is but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed. The Attica brothers demanded that the state stop slave labor and apply the New York State minimum wage law to all state institutions. They also demanded an end to the state's political repression related to communications with the outside. In the spirit of Attica, the struggle for abolition continues. In 2013, almost 30,000 prisoners went on a hunger strike in California to protest the use of solitary confinement. A few years after, and further east, the Free Alabama and Free Ohio movements formed and began coordinating with the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee. Ben Turk is with the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee and helped support the 2016 strike on the outside. The call for a coordinated strike came from Free Alabama Movement, Free Ohio Movement, and prisoners in various different places. As soon as they heard that folks were talking about a coordinated national work stoppage, people everywhere were like, hell yeah, we've been talking about that forever, we're excited to get on board, let's do this. When people take action behind bars, it's up to those on the outside to share what's being planned and what kinds of support are needed by strikers inside. By the time September 9th was coming around, prisoners in Alabama, the lockdown situation was much more severe and they lost a lot of their communication. And so they, they did do strikes and work stoppages, but it was shorter. Um, and then in other places, it, it was much larger than expected. Uh, here in Michigan, up in the UP at Kinross, I don't think anybody expected the 200 people to go on strike. The UP, or Upper Peninsula of Michigan, is a tourist destination covered in woodlands and dotted with waterfalls. 
It is connected to the rest of the state by a towering four-lane suspension bridge. In a small town an hour north of the bridge, a 50-acre site surrounded by two perimeter chain-link fences, topped with razor ribbon wire, monitored with electronic security devices, and patrolled by armed personnel, holds about 1,200 people that have been labeled criminals. They are fathers, husbands, workers, activists, comrades. Many of them are from the Detroit area, which means they are held five hours from their friends, family, and communities. This prison site is the Kinross Correctional Facility. It is part of an archipelago of similar facilities found across the state of Michigan. Kinross used to be a military base. The government deactivated it after losing the war in Vietnam. A few years later, the state opened a prison called Hiawatha, a few miles away. Then, in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis, the state closed its prison down. Clearly, when the state wants to, it can close prisons. Unfortunately, the state can also reopen them. In 2015, it reopened the facility, which was in terrible condition after being shuttered for six years, and renamed it Kinross. Hundreds of prisoners were transferred there and immediately faced the uninhabitable conditions of the so-called new Kinross facility. Baba X and Ajamu were at the old Kinross facility when Hiawatha was shut down, and were transferred to the so-called new Kinross when the facility was hastily reopened. That facility was Hiawatha, only originally hold, was a whole about six to 800 prisoners. But once they transferred us over, they opened it back up. If we had over 1,200 prisoners there, and it was overcrowded. If we, we were living in a condition, a cube area, where eight men were living in a cube area, aside of a, a large bedroom. We had eight men living in there. The cubes are 15 by 9 feet, smaller than the average parking space. The tiny rooms were overflowing, crammed with bunk beds and storage lockers for eight men and their personal belongings. Like tight packing on the ships, slave ships. That's what they call it, tight packing back then in 1800. They're the same thing. They double, triple, and cry triple us up. You understand where we're at? We're tumbling over each other, trying, you know, trying to just get off the bunks. In the 1980s, Baba X and his family were terrorized by burning crosses staked into their lawn. He later founded the Coalition to End Police Brutality after being brutalized by the local police department. In addition to community organizing, Baba X filed a legal suit against the department and won, but was later targeted for retaliation and thrown into prison. Things of birds and ants, you know, stuff like that was still there. And then the species and everything was still in the air ducts. And as soon as they moved us over there, a lot of people there, about 10 guys went to the hospital within about a week or so because uh, the air was so bad. And of course, you know about the food, the history of the food and the maggots and the and I, me, myself, I started coughing up yellow and black substances out of my lungs and stuff. And I, I had to go around with my nose covered up constantly. Slept with my nose covered up, you understand? Like Baba X, Ajamu Baruti has been locked up for more than two decades. He's a gray-haired bibliophile who often quotes George Jackson in his handwritten letters. Ajamu has also written extensively on psychological warfare inside of prisons. And once they opened the penalty step. The, the air was coming through there and was getting people in the lungs and getting people sick. I know because it was a guy in my unit. There had to be about four or five guys. They had to rush him to the hospital. And they and they, I messed up the, uh, the cardiovascular system because it got into their lungs. You go to the doctor. A lot of the doctors, I mean, like this one doctor, Dr. Ranta, he was telling me, hey, you can't send these guys back because they're sick. And when they, when they, when the inmates, when they came to the hospitals. 
It was so packed. I mean, everything was so bad. The air was so bad. The food was so bad. And the inhumane attitudes of the COs, the administration was uncompromised. They sent uh, block reps up to talk to the people about the conditions, and they talked to the people about the conditions. The next thing you know, they come in the middle of the night, and they send them, they chain the block reps up and send them off. You know, then they disappeared them. You see. Very bad, you know, just went off like a, like a fuse, you know, and just exploded, you know, especially when the chance came, came, you know, September the 9th, and then I can see where the spirits are back in September the 9th, back in the attic prison, you know, because everything just, everything just, just exploded and went off, you know. Yeah, see if you can get some more escorting staff to help with the prisoners coming out of the unit. The fire is out in Delta. We're going to clear the two sides, okay? Delta copies. Delta, can you open the end door? Earlier that year, prisoners at several facilities across Michigan staged coordinated boycotts against maggot-infested food. At some facilities, upwards of a thousand prisoners boycotted the chow hall en masse. The first of these protests kicked off at Kinross, where prisoners protested the food situation as well as the overcrowded, unhealthy, and unlivable conditions they had endured since the facility reopened. Over the course of the year, those at Kinross held several more unity actions but administrators at all levels ignored their grievances and conditions only worsened. That was when people on the inside heard about the call for a coordinated national strike. The Free Alabama Movement's call to a national prisoner strike on the anniversary of the Attica Rebellion came as part of a broader shift in strategy within the prisoner resistance movement. In 2015, the Free Alabama Movement had issued a three-part strategy called Let the Crops Rot in the Fields. They argued that if we want to put an end to mass incarceration and prison slavery, imprisoned workers should shift away from a strategy focused on hunger strikes to one focused on economic non-participation. If imprisoned people organize as workers, as those who clean, cook, and maintain the prison, with the support of those of the outside, they can shut prisons down. Harold Gonzalez never expected to become an unofficial spokesperson for the strike. An eloquent writer and mediator, he fell into the role by chance and necessity. They planned a protest and they wanted to be peaceful and open an intellectual dialogue with the administration to better the conditions. The day before that, we had a work stoppage uh, where everybody, nobody went to work, and that, that alerted the administration. But the administration was, I, I guess I could say, compliant because they didn't write the tickets at that time. They hadn't wrote anybody any tickets or nothing. I mean, they was willing to communicate. Inside prison walls, tickets function similarly to how they function on the outside. They are often issued by a correctional officer to discipline incarcerated people who are claimed to have violated some rule. But the officers and the staff there had a different opinion. They were upset about it, and they got abusive, and they started mistreating us and, 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 and malnourishing us, feeding us, spoiled food and things like that, which incited the inmates to get angry, which incited a whole other set of inmates, an aggressive set of inmates. It really sparked off the 9, 10, 16 incident where they just rebelled and came out on the yard and wanted to hold the protest out on the yard. That carried on for a day and a half. 
and frustration amongst the prison population was increasing. You know, guys were getting really frustrated, you know, because first of all, the idea of not going to work, of, of the work strike, thinking that it would induce some conversation, some discussion amongst the administration, that wasn't working. Fred Williams is a poet and painter who was sentenced to life without parole at the age of 17. He's called into several conference and community panels to discuss prison and abolition. But these guys, you know, took it upon themselves to disregard all rules and policies that day. And they walked in circles in the common area chanting, and the crowd just grew larger and larger and larger until the point where when I looked out the window, it looked like it was maybe five, 600 guys out there. And at one point, they basically stormed the control center. It seemed like it was like 250 guys in front of the control center. And some administration staff had, had went outside to talk to the guys. And, and the prisoners were, were really hostile at that point because they felt like their voices weren't being heard, no matter how peacefully they made requests for changes. For instance, some small changes like the visiting room. Prior to that day, when you go on a visit with your family member, you would have to sit across from your family member instead of being able to sit next to your family member or loved one. And so small things like that that could have been changed here within the administration weren't even being heard or considered. And so they were frustrated. You know, they, they began yelling at administration and they began making threats. And so the ERT was called in, the emergency response team was called in. The ERT is a specially trained unit of the Michigan Department of Corrections, which, much like riot police on the outside, are called to repress rebellions on the inside. Like you'll have a small ERT team that can come eradicate a small crowd or a small riot, small fight, but the magnitude of this crowd <laughs> require much more. And so, you know, they call it ERT. ERT uh, members came from all over the state. And so it took a while for them to get that team together. So it took four or five hours. And from what I understand, this is either the first or second time the government allowed for live ammunition to be entered onto the prison compound in Michigan. And so I would say, I don't know, four or five hours, because they had blew the emergency count. And the emergency count is um, it's an institutional horn that everyone knows, right? Once you hear that emergency count, that means go to your room, lock down, get on your bunk so you can be counted. And this is a this is a horn that everyone adheres to. It's kind of like a fire alarm when you know to exit the building. What is when you hear this emergency count horn? That means enter the building. And everyone ignored it. Those are all rules and policies went out the door. Like all consequences for any breaking any rules and policies went, went were, were were not adhered to. And I noticed that once the ERT was about to come through the door of the control center to enter the compound. You know, those, the, the prison population who were out there protesting, they strategically closed off the, the entrance so that the guy, so that the ERT couldn't enter into the facility to, you know, disperse the crowd. And then I noticed that once the administration noticed what the prisoners were doing, they rerouted the ERT to a side entrance. And once the prisoners noticed that, they blocked the side entrance. So they had the front entrance and the side entrance blocked. It's like a game of chess, you know, you move, we move, you move, we move. And, and in that game, the administration came out and talked, and they said, you know, okay, we're going to make, we're going to try to make these changes. We're going to try to make these changes. We're going to listen to you. We're going to allow guys, block reps from your house, and to come up and talk to us. And we're going to sit down and discuss some of these things. And we're going to fix this. And we're going to fix that. Some of your demands can only be met by suits and lancers, 
or can only be denied or granted by suits and lancing. So it's really, you know, they were saying it was impractical for those guys to expect the administration to make those changes at that day and time. So, you know, the language that they used was enough to you know, quell the failure spirit for that moment. And so they told those guys, if you go lock in, if you go lock down and be counted so we can make sure no one, you know, escaped or anything, then, you know, we'll get you guys hot meals, we'll get you guys good food, you know, and we'll start discussing these issues. And it was a trick. Those guys went in and locked down and was counted. And then something that had never happened before happened. All of the officers who worked in each housing unit fled the building. Once every prisoner was on their bunk to be on their bunk to be counted, all the all the officers of each housing unit left and ran to the control center. And so at that point, all the prisoners were like, "Oh, Armageddon! Like, what's going on?" Like, then the ERT came and they came in. Get down, everyone! Get down! Get on your bunk! Get on your bunk! You see red beams on on your the guy next to your forehead and the guy next to you telling you there's a red beam on your forehead. <laughs> One of the few photographs that leaked out of the prison shows a cinder block bathroom with porcelain sinks half shattered and falling off the wall. But the, the emergency response teams did just as much damage as the inmates did just on when they did come in the units, but they blamed that on the inmates too. But for finally, they gassed us repeatedly over and over again, even when nobody wasn't doing anything. But finally, when they got us to walk outside the unit, put us in cuffs, they put us on buses and rode us to different facilities. The men rode to new facilities after being handcuffed on the ground for hours. Freezing cold and wet from the rain, but also from having been left to soil themselves. This was just the beginning of the brutal retaliation that rained down on those held captive by the state. Okay, just be advised, um some of your your vans may be going to Barriga. So when you uh, turn them over to the Nagani uh, car, just advise them they may be going all the way to Barriga. And the last buses that are leaving here right now are going to Alger, Alger and uh, our guys will take care of that. Clear? Clear, I think. It's headed. Not coming up on Shingleton. Clear. And uh, continue on to the prison, and then uh, we'll advise... In the aftermath of the riot, more than 200 people were immediately transferred from Kinross to maximum correctional facilities. In such transfers, people lose all of their belongings forever. Ajamu, Baba, and Harold were transferred out of Kinross and put in solitary confinement for almost a year. Fred remained in the Kinross facility for one year and was later moved north to a higher security level inside another prison. When uh, the incident happened, they rounded all of us up. They took us down. They had they had to open a, a prison that had been closed for several years. Just this house, about over a hundred some prisoners from from Kenroy. They had to cut the water on. The water came out dark or dark orange because it had been on, and the condition was real. It was it was beyond human living because there was so much dirt and filth in those cells. They put us in there for about three or four days, and after that, they moved us to Northside Quarantine, and we stayed to stay there about three weeks, and then we everybody was transferred, and then the food condition was worse. We sometimes get less food. It was really about psychological control, you know, 
and uh, I seen brothers, uh, I seen guys getting gassed in a hole in there because they was protesting about the food, the condition of food. They saying they was holding their trade, so they were suffering themselves to get gas. He asked me that the response team came. There were six guys came to gas them and took their trade. And it's really about it was psychological, it was psychological warfare in, uh, in a hole. When you go, when you do something like this and you stand up for something like this, you get that, you know, you you get the harassment, you get all that to go with. I lost. Uh, they took 1,532 days of good time from me. That's five years. And the guys, they're always trying to provoke you or something, you know. I paid $175 to be heard for a rehearing in Lansing, and uh, they said I was two days late, so I never was allowed to defend myself for these charges. And they finally sent me to Oaks, Oaks facility. I lost 63 pounds in about six, seven months. And I know, I know it had something to do with stress living without, you know, the heat for months. They wouldn't turn the heat on for months. You know, we had to work out to stay warm down there. And we had to receive, uh, had to wait what, for two weeks, three weeks to receive a coat, something that I was supposed to have, you know, by law, which kept me from going outside to the cage for my one hour, you know, out of every two or three days a week to work out, you know, to get outside because we locked up for another 23 hours out of the day. The whole thing is about control, control your movement, control your, uh, what you receive in here because I just received a paper from the San Francisco Black National Paper and they were talking about the million prisoner march that just happened August 19th in Washington, D.C. about the human rights and they rejected it. And I asked the counselor about why did you reject it? It's not advocating violence, but she just said speaking about human rights and talking about the condition of prisoners here. So anytime you talk about prison condition, they don't want the prison to hear that. They don't want that kind of news to come in here. Uh, since being here at this facility, they didn't want to let me out of the hole. I guess on May 1st, they, the, the Lansing had said that they were supposed to let all the Kim Ross prisoners out of the hole. They didn't want to let me out of the hole. Uh, I had to have actually have people call up here, and it worked. But they called me back and told me, uh, the deputy warden, it was a deputy warden and a lieutenant who told me that they were going to let me out. This was the exact words. They said, I'm quite sure you've heard that we're about to let all the people out from Ken Ross. And uh, quite sure you know that because of the amount of calls we've been getting about you. We're going to let you out. And he said if it was up to him, he wouldn't be letting me out, but he's going to let me out. Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity, or MAPS, formed in the wake of the Ken Ross Rebellion. The group connected with prisoners who had been transferred as a retaliatory measure in the wake of the September 9 strike. MAPS organized a sequence of coordinated call-ins to release those held captive in solitary confinement. These efforts succeeded, but retaliation continues in more subtle ways. Increasingly restrictive mail policy changes put forth by the Michigan Department of Corrections attempt to cut off and further control any kind of communication across prison walls. Heather Ann Thompson is a historian and activist from Detroit who has written extensively about the most famous prison uprising in U.S. history, that of Attica in 1971. After the Kinross strike, she published several high-profile articles on the connections between Kinross and Attica. It's one thing to celebrate a prison rebellion and to celebrate the brothers and the sisters who do it. It is completely another than to just go home. Because what happens to them afterwards 
Attica shows is the real center of gravity for what they're experiencing. I mean, that is a level of repression we can't even imagine. And clearly the men in Kinross and, you know, the women at these facilities in Kansas and, you know, scores and scores of undocumented families and, you know, nobody's going to go away. And so it's just a question of really looking at the past so that hopefully next time around, one of the greatest human rights struggles does not get told by the state and does not get spun by the state because the consequences of that were devastating. It meant that a generation of people never understood what had happened at Attica, both to the good, meaning what organizational strengths were in there, what led to it, what brought people together. They didn't learn about the legal defense. They didn't learn about, they didn't learn anything. But one thing that the state learned or taught everybody was the prisoners are animals. That's all they learned, right? quote unquote, learned. And so we need to learn our history if we're in one of those moments again. And I think we are in one of those moments again. To this day, the Michigan Department of Corrections denies that there ever was a rebellion. Even as it issued incite to riot or strike tickets to those it immediately put in solitary confinement. Incite to riot or strike is considered a class one misconduct, which puts it in the same category of violations as homicide and sexual assault. Ben Turk argues that it's important for us to remember and learn from these events, as this might better prepare us for the rebellions to come. There's a feedback loop that happens when prisoners go on strike or take action. It's inspiring to us on the outside. And then when we step up to have solidarity and have their back, that shows them that they aren't alone in those struggles and that emboldens them to take more action. And if we can keep that feedback loop going, then we can really shake the foundation of this thing that, that's strangling all of us, really. So I'm excited to see what happens in the future and going forward as we generalize the idea of supporting prison strikes, then wherever it is that they happen, there'll be people on the outside who are ready and have already have some experience doing it who can step up. I don't know sometimes, I think about the fact that because I, I heard that more facilities within the state were supposed to protest in the same way at the same time. And so I imagine, in theory, had that occurred, like, I just imagine how, it's hard to imagine how the state could have responded, you know, what happened to it, employ so much manpower and resources to this one facility at that time. Like, can you imagine 10, 12, 15 facilities on fire with prisoners jumping out of windows and, you know, refusing to lock down, refusing to be counted and looting, you know, because, you know, there was a point where guys were looting the gardens and, you know, from what I understand, they were, they were really close to, you know, breaking into the child hall, looting the child hall. And at a point at this facility during that protest, like, you can clearly see that the prisoners had, had taken control. Like, that emergency count and the, and, the, and the threats that they were yelling over the bullhorns to go lock down, it, it, it didn't work. You know, guys did not go in and lock down. So at one point where, you know, they were denying ERT entrance, even entrance into the facility, like the administration didn't have control at that point. If you control a man's thought, you don't have to worry about action. And we're in a psychological warfare, so brothers got to start getting political conscience. And then you got to read. We got to read and broaden our awareness. I said solidarity love out to everyone. The fire of rebellion has not been extinguished by the retaliation that rained down on those in struggle, neither at Attica nor at Kinross. In February 2018, a month-long work stoppage named Operation Push was launched by Florida prisoners and outside supporters. It was slated for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, 
to improve the lives of incarcerated people and the communities we come from. The rebellions continue because conditions inside and outside remain unlivable. The rebellions continue because a persistent force organizing in the spirit of abolition is rattling walls and cages to make prisons obsolete. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. If today's show raised questions for you, share the show with a friend. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is making underscore contact. The show was produced by Alejo Stark and Ian Maria of Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Solidarity and Roosevelt Abolition Radio with Making Contact producer Marie Che. The interviews with Ajamu, Baba X, Harold, and Fred were originally recorded for Michigan's King Ross Prison Strike, Reflections from Inside. To learn more about the strike and prison resistance organizing, check out our website at rustboltradio.org and follow us on Twitter at Rustbolt Radio. Today's show was recorded at the studios of WNUC LPFM Detroit and included original music and sound by Bad Infinity and DJ Live Leaks. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Marie Che, RJ Lozada, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, Vera Tykulsker, and Sabine Blazan. I'm Alejo Stark. And I'm A. Maria. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.